So today we're continuing on in our book of 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 16, verses 15, reading through to chapter 17, verse uh, 23. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Then Then Hushai, the archite, David's confidant, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king, long live the king. Absalom said to Hushai, So this is the love you show to your friend? If he is your friend, why don't you go with him? Hushai said to Absalom, No, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people and by all the men of Israel, his I will be and and I will remain with him. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the son? Just as I served your father, so I will serve you. Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give us your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel answered, Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father, and to the hand of everyone, and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of the one who inquires of God. This is how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror and then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the, I would strike down only the king and bring the people back with you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to the elders of Israel. But Absalom said, Summon also Hushai the archite, so we can hear what he has to say as well. When Hushai came to him, Absalom said, Ahithophel has given this advice. Should we do what he says? If not, give us your opinion. Hushai replied to Absalom, The advice Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. You know your father and his men. They are fighters and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. Even now he is hidden in a cave or some other place. If he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about that will say, there has been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a fighter and those with him are brave. So I advise you, let all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you, with you yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him wherever he may be found, and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring the ropes to that city and we will drag it down to the valley until not so much as a pebble is left. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of of Ahithophel. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Hushai told Zadok and Abathar, the priests, Ahithophel has advised Absalom and the elders of Israel to do such and such, but I have advised them to do so and so. Now send a message at once and tell David, do not spend the night at the fords in the wilderness. Cross over without fail, or the king and all the people with him will be swallowed up. Jonathan and Ahimaz were staying at Enrogel. 
A female servant was told to go and inform them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they could not risk being seen entering into the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So the two of them left at once and went to the house of a man in Bahurim. He had a well in his courtyard, and they climbed down into it. His wife took a covering and spread it over the opening of the well and scattered grain over it. No one knew anything about it. When Absalom's men came, into the, came to the woman at the house, they said, Where is Ahimaaz and Jonathan? The woman answered them, They crossed over the brook. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the two climbed out of the well and went to inform King David. They said to him, Set out and cross the river at once. Ahithophel has advised such and such against you. So David and all the people with him set out and crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, no one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. Thank you, Kay. Morning again, everyone. Please do keep your Bibles open. I'll lead us briefly in prayer and we'll get stuck into it. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word, the Bible. Please be with us now. Strengthen us by your spirit uh, to help us learn, to take to heart what it is uh, that you'd speak to us this morning and transform us more into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As Jesus hung, dying on the cross, we're told, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46, that about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I suspect that if you've been a Christian for a while, you'd be familiar uh, with this uh, particular event. Uh, it's known by theologians as the cry of dereliction, and it's the moment where, for the first and only time in all of eternity, the most perfect, loving relationship between God the Eternal Father and God the Eternal Son suffered the most dreadful rift beyond imagination. We reflect this idea poetically when we sing the words, how great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. So deep and profound is God's love that it was while we were still sinners that Christ underwent such a hell for us. And yet when we give a few minutes thought to this momentous and foundational event, we can discover this little alarming theological dilemma. You see, we know that God's eternally unchanging, right? God's the same yesterday, today and forever. And we know that he is uh, uh, fundamentally relational. God is God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons as one God in perfect unity. And yet there was no heavenly answer to Jesus' cry of dereliction as he hung on the cross. See, if God the Father turned his face away, if he did not listen to God the Son, as he cried out on the cross, has there not been some kind of division within the Trinity? If our understanding of what happened on the cross and our understanding of who God is, if those two things can't fit together, if they are mutually exclusive, then either God's not God or we're not saved. 
Now, of course, as I know you'd guess, those things do fit together. The Father did indeed turn his face away from the Son, and yet the Trinity remained undivided. The question that as Christians we do very well to be able to answer, the question that it's good to have in our sort of kit bag is how? How did God remain undivided at the very point where the Son experienced true and genuine forsakenness from the Father? And I'm pleased to say that this morning a significant part of the answer to that question comes from what God's going to teach us from a series of events that took place around a thousand years before Jesus underwent that God-forsakenness that you and I might never have to. As we re-enter the saga of David's downfall in the second half of 2 Samuel, David's son Absalom is in the process of forcefully taking over David's throne and David and his men are therefore in exile. David has sent one of his loyal followers, a guy named Hushai, to pretend to be an advisor to Absalom, but really, of course, as a servant for David. When Hushai first meets Absalom as king, he deceives Absalom, get this, by telling him the truth. He deceives Absalom by speaking truth, and that's because he speaks true words, yes, but he speaks to ears so proud that they are unable to discern what's really being said. From verse 16, then Hushai the archite, David's confidant, went to Absalom and said to him, long live the king, long live the king. Now we know, because we've seen already, that Hushai only recognises David as king. But we also know, and he knows, that it's not going to cross Absalom's mind to think that he's referring to anyone other than Absalom. And so Absalom wants to know why Hushai has changed sides. Verse 17, so Absalom had said to Hushai, so this is a love you show to your friend. If he's your friend, why don't you go with him? See, Absalom doesn't say, if he's your king why don't you go with him? It's just if he's your friend, you see. And that shows us that when, when Absalom first heard Hushai saying, long live the king, he assumed it was all about himself. How then does Hushai answer the obvious question about why he hasn't actually sided with David as be it king or friend? Well, astoundingly, Hushai answers that question again by speaking truth. But again, Absalom mishears it on account of his pride. Verse 18... Hushai said to Absalom, no, and, and this no is really a no, I haven't abandoned David, but it's going to get heard as no, I was right to reject David. That's how he's going to hear it. No, continuing verse 18, why? Well, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people and by all the men of Israel, his I will be and I will remain with him. Now, this makes Hushai the first person to suggest that Absalom is, quote, chosen by the Lord, even though that's not actually what he's suggesting. It's very tricky. And that would give a very good reason for him to ab abandon whoever it is and to follow the one that's chosen by the Lord. And then Hushai sweetens the deal by asking a rhetorical question to which Absalom would assume a positive answer. 
even though Hushai actually assumes a negative answer. Verse uh, 19, and I'm using the Holman translation here because it gets it better. Furthermore, says Hushai, whom will I serve if not his son? As I served in your father's presence, I will also serve in yours. Translation, just as I served David in David's presence, so now I will serve David in your presence. Now, at no point through this very crafted speech is Hushai ever dishonest. He simply banks on Absalom listening with proud rather than humble ears, which is an important thing for us to take to heart when it comes to reading the Word of God, isn't it? In his loyalty to David, Hushai models, I think, what it means for a disciple to be shrewd as a snake yet innocent as a dove. Absalom hadn't paid attention to what Yahweh had made clear through Samuel. It's not the tall, handsome and now eldest son that God automatically chooses. God doesn't look at the outward appearance, we know, and he chooses not as man chooses, but in accordance with his own heart. If Absalom knew that, then perhaps he wouldn't have been so blind to Hushai's true, albeit very carefully chosen words. Nonetheless, now that Hushai is on board, Absalom needs to plan what the next step is going to be in this coup that he's, he's enacting. He turns to his main advisor, the guy with the unfortunately difficult name Ahithophel, and Ahithophel's advice for the next step absolutely seals the rift between Absalom and David to the point of really almost no return. From verse 21, Ahithophel answered, Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father, and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Uh, this is about the boldest, rub-it-in-your-face kind of way of emphatically saying to everyone, yeah, I'm the king and sucked in David, you're not. Obviously what happens here is such a mess of wrong, of wrongness, wrong on so many levels as we say. Uh, there's the power imbalance that reduces women to basically sex slaves. There's the breaking of Levitical law about who one can have sexual relations with. Uh, there's the existence of concubines in the first place. There's the fact that this advice is so cold and calculated and actually serves the interests of Ahithophel as much as Absalom. You see, if Absalom does do something so in your face as this, then it will sever the relationship with his father so thoroughly that there's no longer any chance for Absalom to back out. And that benefits Ahithophel, you see, because if Absalom, for whatever reason, did pull out and put David back in power, let's just say Ahithophel would be out of a job. But with all that mess of wrong, there's still something even more damning about this, this crazy event. You see, Ahithophel and Absalom are doing this horrible deed for their own sinful and political reasons. But it's also something that Yahweh, the Lord, had promised would happen as a consequence for David's abusive acts of murder and adultery that, incidentally, had started on that same palace roof. 
Many of you probably remember back from chapter 12, after David's great sin, the Lord said, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. The most damning thing about this whole event is that it's actually God's punishment for David. Whilst evil is never the desire of God, it is nonetheless something that falls under his sovereign control, like all things, and therefore is used in accordance with his plans. And with that, we come to point three, which I'm comfortable enough in my masculinity to have entitled Pride and Prejudice. In order to both show himself as a valuable advisor and at the same time to help out David, Hushai relies again on appealing to Absalom's pride. After hearing that Ahithophel really is a great advisor who happens to be prejudiced against David and advises on the basis of self-interest, we're told that Ahithophel advises Absalom to strike now and to kill only David and to be assured that after he does that, David's followers would turn back and become Absalom's followers. God himself would later on call this good advice. God calls what Ahithophel said good advice. And chapter 17, verse 4, Ahithophel's plan seemed good to Absalom and his men. It seems really good when you first read it. Kill just David, all his men will come back to you. But there's this awesome proverb that I quite like and I use as an excuse in this part of uh, God's Word to, to bring to our attention. Proverbs 18.17, it says, In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. Now, Ahithophel's vice was actually good, but Absalom then asks for Hushai's advice. And Hushai, being a brilliant strategist, comes up with a plan that both appeals to Absalom's pride and also buys David a whole stack of time. So from verse 7 of chapter 17, Hushai replied to Absalom, the advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. You know your father and his men. They are fighters and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. Translation... David's desperate, he's on the run, and therefore he's like a wounded animal. He's like a mama bear who has no regard for her, how violent she is to, to protect the cub, right? In other words, he's going to fight dirty. He's going to punch below the belt. He might, you know, try and kill people at night or whatever. And also, he's a good fighter. He's so clever. He's probably not going to be easy to find. He's not going to be where you expect him. Continuing, verse 9, even now, Hushai says, he's hidden in a cave or some other place. If he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it's going to say, there's been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier whose heart is like the heart of a lion will melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a fighter and that those with him are brave. In other words, Absalom, mate, your reputation is at risk. And if there's one thing you can always bank on when it comes to someone who is proud or has narcissistic tendencies, as I think we see in Absalom, is that they are extremely overprotective, unnecessarily overprotective of their reputation. So now Hushai is perfectly poised 
to give the glorious climax of his proposal, a proposal that makes Absalom the absolute star of the show. Verse 11, look how Absalom focuses his verse 11, so I advise you, let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you and with you yourself, leading them into battle. Then we'll attack him wherever he may be found and we'll fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel being ropes to that city and will drag it down to the valley until not so much as a pebble is left. The alarm bells should have been sounding at maximum volume while Hushai said that Absalom will be leading all of Israel into battle. Because by now they've got about a million examples that have taught them that they need God to be the one leading them into battle if they're going to succeed. Inquiring of the Lord, bringing the Ark of the Covenant, having the Lord go before them to rout their enemies. This is what we've seen time and time again all throughout Samuel thus far. This is how David himself was successful. Hushai's proposal puts Absalom basically in the place of God. And if there's one thing you can bank on with a proud or or narcissistic person, is that they're always predictable. It's the saving grace of people like this. They're always predictable. They will always go for the option that they perceive as giving them the greater reputation. And so verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahithophel. But, Ahithophel's prejudice, Absalom's pride and ignorance, they were the penultimate reason that Hushai's advice wins the day. The ultimate reason is given in the second half of verse 14 where we're told, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom and I've used the ESV as you can see there because it rightly reflects that in the original language the word for God, Lord, Yahweh does occur twice in this verse and it's actually the only time in this whole section where we're told explicitly of God's intentions which is why it's the key verse for this part of God's word. The wording here corresponds with what David prayed a couple of chapters back 1531. David remember had prayed Lord, Yahweh, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And then just a few verse after, uh, when David had sent Hushai to serve Absalom, he had said that the purpose was that you, Hushai, would defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. And once you remember that, you realise that's exactly what God is now affirming that his personal intentions also are. To put it simply, as David is being punished by God for his great sins, even then, Yahweh, the Lord, is clearly and unambiguously listening to David. The logic of the text shows us quite emphatically that even as his chosen king is being punished, the Lord listens to his anointed. And of course, both for good and ill, always keeps his promises. David can undergo punishment 
for his sin and yet be listened to by God. And I know that Jesus knew that when he underwent the punishment, not of course for his sin, for there was none, but for yours and mine, as he hung on the cross and cried out to the Father who did forsake the Son, but precisely because he listened to him. You see, though Jesus rightly dreaded the cup of God's holy wrath being poured out upon him, he had nonetheless prayed just a bit beforehand that God the Father would have his will done. Jesus had asked the Father's will to be done. And Jesus knew he was asking, therefore, to be forsaken. And whilst in the midst of bearing the punishment for your sins and mine, God the Father did listen to the Son, precisely because he turned away and forsook him. We're told later in the New Testament that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. The unity of the Trinity was shown as the Son cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Together, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit were in agreement that God should forsake God such that sinners like you and I might have the penalty for our sin taken away. It's the last week of the school holidays. You all still awake? Good. Last point true people of God. David had put this chain of spies in place such that Hushai, who's with the, the king Absalom, could get messages through the chain back to David. And so Hushai told the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, uh, what uh, Absalom was planning, who in turn got a female servant to bring the message to Jonathan and Ahimaaz, who would in turn bring it to David. But around the time Jonathan and Ahimaaz were receiving the message from this female servant, they got seen by a young man who was loyal to Absalom, hence they had to temporarily go into hiding themselves. And this little incident, how Jonathan and Ahimaaz go into hiding, has been recorded for us in detail, so that you and I might be assured of who the real people of God are, both here and also more generally, what they are like uh, at this point in time. Uh, from verse 18, you'll see why this is, this is like, I think this is the coolest part of it, right? Verse 18, so the two of them, Jonathan and Himaaz, left at once and went to the house of a man in Baharim. Uh, he had a well in his courtyard and they climbed down into it. His wife took a covering, and it's important that it's the wife, just keep that in mind, the, the woman. His wife took a covering and spread it out over the opening of the well and scattered grain over it. Another important detail. No one knew anything about it. When Absalom's men came to the woman at the house, they asked, notice they're asking the woman, where is Ahimaaz uh, 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 and Jonathan? And the woman answered, uh, they've crossed over the brook, which is a lie. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. Now surely, I reckon there's got to be some people here for whom this sounds kind of familiar, right? You've got two spies serving the leader of Israel, hidden by a woman who covers them over with stuff, and who happens to live in a town located between Jerusalem and, what do you know, Jericho. What should this remind us of? Someone 
tell me. What, yell it out. What, what, what's going on? Rahab, spot on, right? The two spies that go to visit Rahab. And, uh, and uh, those who search for Rahab are from um, Jericho. What ends up happening to Jericho? Not one stone left on top of the other. Sounds a little bit like when, when Hushai was, was advising Absalom, you know, all Israel will drag it down and not one pebble will be left on the other. Well, interesting. You see, we've already been told that the Lord has ordained to bring disaster on Absalom. And now, with this lovely little event that can't help but remind us of Jericho, we're given this really big hint that God's going to ensure that those who side with Absalom are going to meet a very definite end. In fact, the cards are already starting to fall by the end of today's section. The report does get delivered to David, such that David retreats a little further, just in case Ahithophel's advice won the day, which of course didn't. And then, in verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. Who does this one remind you of? Judas. He backs the wrong horse, right? And, so he, and by the way, hanging is, uh, in Levitical law, sort of strongly associated with being under the curse of God. And so he died and was buried in his father's tomb. And uh, that's the sad end of the section. It's the beginning of the downfall of, of Absalom's coup. The walls, you might say, are already starting to crumble for those who are in the land, but who are clearly not the true people of God. God had made it clear through David and through Samuel and later through other prophets that you cannot stand against the Lord's anointed. Instead of opposing him, the only sensible course of action is to take refuge in him. And so, of course, the first logical implication uh, that's the same in David's day as it, it is in now is to make sure you, you and I, that we're following the leader that God has actually chosen. I, I know, well, I suspect most of us have, but I don't know everyone in this room. Uh, I don't, I say this for the benefit of those who may not as yet know Jesus as their Lord because, uh, spoiler, Jesus is the one the Lord has chosen to be his eternal ruler and therefore he's our ruler. And God made it pretty unambiguously clear by, I don't know, raising him from the dead. That's, that's a pretty hardcore way of proving it. And Jesus has actually already defeated the rival authorities that stand against him. Jesus has even ascended his throne already. The only reason that he's holding off on the final cleanup effort is because he's just so patient and so kind and so loving that he, he gives more people more time to, to repent. I've got a weird imagination. Some say juvenile, some say creative, some say both. As I was looking at this a couple of weeks ago, I don't know why this came to me, but it did. I just imagine, imagine that David miraculously had the power to raise people who had died, like to raise them back to life, right? He didn't, by the way, but just imagine. And you play it out, right? Once David inevitably gets back into power and Absalom and all his cronies are done for, let's imagine that one of those two spies, right, uh, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, let's, let's imagine one of them didn't make it, right? Jonathan, he got the message to David 
And David can see Jonathan now that he's back in power. You know, where's him? Us? Oh, I'm so sorry to tell you, he died for something. Like he was in the well, right? He drowned in the well, right? And what's David going to do now that he's back in power? No worries, mate. Bang. Put him, let's bring him back alive. What about Ahithophel, though, you know, who <laughs> said, uh, yeah, we're going to get this guy, I know, we got my son to sleep with my wife. I think I might just leave him where he is, dead and cursed by God. That's actually not that far off how it's going to be, by the way, when Jesus decides he's going to put his kingdom into effect on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, if you happen to be someone who doesn't yet side with Jesus... This isn't some philosophical pie-in-the-sky kind of thing, right? This is reality. Jesus will literally, at any moment, be it tonight or in a thousand years or anywhere in between, Jesus will, at any moment, return to judge the living and the dead. And it's only those who recognise him as Lord now who will get to enjoy his kingdom for all eternity. Those who remain in their rebellion against him will remain under the curse of God. Lastly, for us, for the church, uh, be assured yet again that it always makes sense to suffer for and to suffer with the one the Lord has actually chosen. It wouldn't have been easy to be Hushai, to be having to be so careful with every word that you utter in the presence of this false king, knowing that getting found out could result in death. Thankfully, that's not our experience, but you've got to remember, we've got brothers and sisters elsewhere in the world for whom being a follower of Jesus is actually like that. They say or do the wrong thing and it gets discovered they're a follower of Jesus and and that's the end. More close to home though, it wouldn't have been easy serving David as one of his blokes out in the wilderness, not knowing where he's going to lead you the next day, not knowing if the next day there's going to be an attack or not. And so it is with each and every Christian. None of us are immune to suffering as we follow the suffering servant who had no place to lay his head. It's one of the worst things about suffering is the indiscriminate nature of it. But in our case, the king we follow, the true king, the descendant of David, Jesus, he knows exactly what our suffering is like. He himself knows whatever it is that we go through. And as sure as he has been vindicated, which the whole world will very soon recognise, well, so too we shall be vindicated. As he was God-forsaken, thankfully we shall never be God-forsaken regardless of what we suffer. You might have some questions or comments about that. You can put them in the Connect form, but for now, let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the true King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's proven to be the Lord's anointed by his resurrection from the dead, who has defeated all enemies that stand against him and has ascended his throne and he's holding off on the last clean-up effort. I pray, Heavenly Father, for anyone here amongst us this morning that as yet uh, does not side with the one that you have chosen to rule, It will please you to turn them in repentance and faith, uh, that they would know the truth and come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. For us, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank and praise you that you've shown yourself uh, to be consistently true as Father, Son and Spirit, even at the point of forsakenness on the cross. And then that happened, that we could be forgiven and we could follow him 
and that we could follow him through thick and thin. And please help us to continue to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.